Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. This is Dr. Dan. Imagine this scenario. You are going through your mail delivered by the United States Postal Service, that is, if they actually manage to find your correct mailbox, and you see an official envelope in which you find a government notification. You are hereby summoned for jury duty on such and such a date and time. Most of us regard that notification with the same eager anticipation we all had on viewing a draft notice from the Selective Service back in the day. Yes, most of you, including me, know exactly what that entailed. Anyway, back to jury duty. Your first reaction most likely is, oh crap. After all, the princely sum of $12 per day won't even cover the cost of fuel to get to the courthouse and back, not to mention paying for food, clothing, and shelter. Your second reaction probably is, what doctor can I get to certify that I have a lethal disease that requires an injection of life-saving medicine every day. Well, most Americans probably believe that the jury system is uniquely an American invention first outlined in the Constitution and Bill of Rights. The roots of the jury system, however, can be traced back over a thousand years to England after the Norman Conquest in 1066 AD. Early juries were used to find facts, testify under oath, settle disputes among people, and eventually to render verdicts in civil and criminal trials. People of that era rightfully viewed juries as an important protection against the dictatorial verdicts of monarchs. Juries were expanded to 12 jurors during the reign of King Henry II, to, dis- to decrease the likelihood of corruption, bribery, and intimidation. This rudimentary configuration for the jury and the duties of jurors were brought to this country by the Puritans. The founders of our nation and subsequent members of the judi- judiciary understood the importance of the jury system to protect the people from government overreach. So here are some quotations from folks in the past. From the Virginia Bill of Rights written in 1788, in suits between man and man, the ancient trial by jury is one of the greatest securities to the rights of the people. 
from Patrick Henry, and I assume you know who he was, trial by jury is the best appendage of freedom. How about Winston Churchill? The jury system has come to stand for all we mean by English justice. The scrutiny of 12 honest jurors provides defendants and plaintiffs alike a safeguard from arbitrary perversion of the law. And Chief Justice William Rehnquist in 1979, the founders of our nation considered the right of trial by jury in civil cases an important bulwark against tyranny and corruption, a safeguard too precious to be left to the whim of the sovereign. Against this historical background, it is important to understand how the jury system operated in the beginning. Jurors were expected to be part of the fact-finding process, to weigh all the circumstances involving the alleged perpetrator and the crime, to evaluate the law itself, and to, to consider all of that in rendering decisions. Unfortunately, in our time, <clears throat> juries are more passive recipients of information and charged to determine if the facts reasonably indicate guilt or innocence. The current system hardly represents the original theory of the jury's more universal obligations. The potential answer to this con is the concept of jury nullification. Jury nullification is based on the theory that the average citizen, when serving on a jury, should be able to override or nullify the laws passed by the legislative body. The jury's reasons may include the belief that the law itself is unjust, that the prosecution has misapplied the law in the defendant's case, that the punishment for breaking the law is unjustly harsh, or out of general frustrations with the government or the criminal justice system. The law limits the ability of trial judges or attorneys to inquire into jurors' motivations in reaching their verdict. Jurors cannot be punished for their verdict, regardless of their reasons, and a jury's verdict of not guilty may not be overturned or appealed by the prosecution. After our commercial break, we will return for a discussion of jury nullification with our guest, Kirsten Tynan, the executive director of the Fully Informed Jury Association. This is Dr. Dan, and we are back with Kirsten Tynan, executive director of the Fully Informed Jury Association. Before I go on, I invite you to visit their website, FIJA.org, which of course stands for Fully Informed Jury Association.org. Kirsten Tynan has been educating people for more than a decade on the protective role of the jury and the full rights and authority of jurors. Her educational work places special focus on jurors' rights to temper the law with mercy through jury nullification to deliver just verdicts. Kirsten Tynan, thank you so much for being a guest 
on Freedom Forum Radio. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. What is jury nullification and how does it work? Well, normally when people are sitting in the jury box being given instructions by a judge, they're going to be told they have two choices and those are these. They will be told that if you do not believe that the accused has been proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, you must vote not guilty. And if you do believe the accused has been proved guilty beyond reasonable doubt, you should, or we are sometimes hearing more strong language than that, must or will, but it's typically you should vote guilty. That must-should dichotomy used to be sort of the thing that was considered to cue the jurors that they had a secret third option. (laughs) That secret third option we refer to as jury nullification. And that is this. If you believe the accused has been proved proved beyond reasonable doubt to have violated the law, you don't actually have to vote guilty. You can if you think that's just, or if you think that even though they broke the law, technically, It would still be a just verdict to let them go free without any punishment. You can still vote not guilty. And that third option is what we call jury nullification. So what we're talking about is in jury trials now, jurors are given they're either guilty or not guilty. How do they get how do they make that decision in our current system? What what are they given in terms of information or tools to make that decision? That is pretty variable based on the case and the court. Um, there is a lot of discretion that judges have, but what is very common are, is that judges will often pre-screen the information before it gets to the jury. Sometimes it's for a good reason, such as not to violate the accused Fourth Amendment rights, but I would say far more often it is to give the prosecution a little help. Um, Sometimes, for instance, a judge will decide, oh, I don't think this was self-defense, so I'm not going to allow you to argue self-defense. Or if the accused is going to raise a necessity defense. I had to, you know, yes, I broke the law, but I have a good reason kind of thing. The judge will decide, well, the jury shouldn't hear what your reasons were. So a lot of information is pre-screened and not available to jurors, but they do sit through the whole trial. And what they hear is the information they have as far as evidence and testimony. Then before they go to deliberate, they are given a set of instructions by the judge. And by given, I mean that it could just be read to them and they don't have a copy of the like dozens of pages he just read to them. Sometimes they will get a copy to take into the deliberation room. But these instructions will typically involve wording, especially if it's a case. So usually in like if someone's accused of murder, Either you believe they did it and you want to convict them, or you don't believe they did it and you don't want to convict them. There aren't a whole lot of situations where you think someone set out to murder another person, and but you want to forgive them and just let them off the hook. So usually in those kind of cases, this type of instruction doesn't come up. But say it's a case where someone was accused of Um, For instance, in Wisconsin and uh, I think Minnesota several years ago, we saw cases where um, farmers were giving raw milk to people who sought it out purposely and were um, prosecuted for essentially licensing issues. 
Um, they didn't have the licenses from the state, basically because the state refused to license raw milk. So they were they were basically being accused for something that harmed nobody. Just it just made the state angry that they weren't following the state's edicts. So they were going to criminally prosecute them. And in those cases where there is a good likelihood that the jury would be sympathetic if they knew all the information, prosecutors will file a motion in limine ahead of time. And basically, that's just a motion that settles something ahead of time before the jury hears it. And they'll They'll file a motion basically saying, don't let them talk about anything that would, you know, bring up sympathy from the jury during the testimony and evidence, and then ask for jury instructions that essentially bully jurors out of, you know, consulting their conscience and, you know, voting based on conscience and not strictly based on the facts. So they will pre-screen the facts so that the only facts that get through are the ones that say this person broke the law, and then they will strongly instruct jurors that you'll often hear an instruction from the judge saying, you must follow the law as I give it to you. You decide only whether they broke the law or not. I decide what the law is. They'll often be told you shouldn't consider um, what the punishment is in your, what the potential punishment could be in your deliberations. And I find that one particularly interesting because if you think about it, what other area in your life are you told to ignore the consequences of your actions and just charge ahead with them? If you did that in a situation where you were at a bar drinking and then wanted to drive home, you would be considered criminally negligent or or worse if you ignored the consequence of that action. But here you're strictly you're you're specifically being told, ignore the consequences of your actions, just do this. So they get a lot of information that discourages them from using jury nullification. They won't be specifically told about jury nullification. And if it does come up, if they ask questions about it, uh, appeals courts have ruled that judges who essentially lie to jurors about it and say, there's no such thing as jury nullification, or you'd be breaking your oath to do it or things like that, that they appeals courts have ruled. Yes. Even though those are inaccurate, it's considered harmless error. So we won't use that as a basis for any relief for the accused. They don't get their uh, verdict overturned. They don't get any sort of other special consideration, none of that. So basically they've, they've given judges carte blanche to lie to jurors. It's, it's a pretty bad picture. So <clears throat> what I'm getting from this discussion at this point um, is that this this is a departure from the kind of involved jurors uh, over the centuries in the past. And I think that's an important point to discuss because I get so, sort of a picture from what I've read is that in the past, the jurors were actually involved, maybe even in questioning people as part of their uh, of the jury. So how about some of the history of, of old-time juries? What did they do to actually be relevant to making a decision that mattered? So I don't know if in early United States juries they had much fact-finding, um, or sorry, uh, investigative um, role, but they did in England. Uh, part of the reason that kind of butts up against the Fourth Amendment because uh, there, 
your Fourth Amendment right to be, you know, secure from unreasonable searches and seizures means that we don't want. Basically, that's a protective role for, or protective element for all of us not to have the government go to any any length it wants to, no matter how abusive, to be able to, you know, dig up dirt on us. Um, so it may it may be that as that grew in importance, jurors' investigative investigative role diminished. Uh, but I don't know a whole lot of details on that. What I do know, if you look at grand juries, for instance, um, in early American history, you will see that they worked almost exactly the opposite of how they work now. Uh, for those who aren't super familiar with grand juries, uh, in, in many states and in uh, federal criminal trials, before you get to the trial part where you have the uh, trial jury of 12 people, in order to even take that case to court, um, there may be a grand jury involved. Um, not every state has a grand jury. Some states, the government can just decide to prosecute you on its own. But in some states and in federal criminal courts, the government has to first get a grand jury to agree that you have a reason to be brought to court. And in those cases, how it used to work is Today, the prosecutor decides what to charge you with and brings everything to the grand jury and feeds it to them at a very fast pace and basically just gets them to rubber stamp it in almost every case. I can't remember if it was North Carolina or another state, but I, I seem to recall reading one news article maybe six or seven years ago where a grand jury was indicting people looking at each case, if you did the math on how many cases and how much time they sat in one day, it was like every 53 seconds or something like that, they were indicting someone. So they're clearly not doing a great job there. They, it, it is true that um, they, the grand jury in particular does still have an investigative role, but it's kind of hidden from them because of the way that prosecutors have taken everything over. In early American history, the prosecutor couldn't be involved unless invited by the grand jury. If someone had a problem with someone else, that person themselves drafted the complaint and brought it to the grand jury. And then the grand jury determined how, how to tell the prosecutor to proceed. Now the government's running around looking for reasons to prosecute people and just runs it over to the grand jury real quick to get a signature and then gets you into court. So it, it's pretty much the exact opposite of how it used to be. It used to be the grand jury protected you. Now people think grand jury, oh no, I, you know, they're they're very fearful of it. And why? Because it's being used as a tool to prosecute people, not as a tool to protect people. Um, so that that was very different uh, back then. Um, it was also far more common for um, trial juries to know about jury nullification. In, if you look at the um, Declaration of Independence, you'll see a section of the list of grievances. Most people are familiar with taxation without representation. But if you look just beyond that, you will then see um, two related grievances, um, that being the denial of the benefits of trial by jury. Now, it doesn't just say the denial of trial by jury, but the benefits of trial by jury. And one of those benefits at the time related to the tax grievance was jury nullification. And then another grievance was that they were being transported overseas to basically be tried 
outside of their communities without the benefit of people who are sympathetic to them to be on their juries. And again, why do they want sympathetic people on their juries? Because those people were more likely to nullify. Whereas being transported overseas, they weren't going to get a jury at all, let alone people who would think, oh, well, I kind of get why he did that. And you know, he didn't really have any other options, or maybe he had other options, but they weren't really going to be very effective. We kind of see the situation here very differently from, you know, someone who's just a government person holding a trial overseas is going to think. They're obviously, once the government decides to prosecute you, it's almost a foregone conclusion that they're going to convict you. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Everything gonna be all.